Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. This week, we are joined by Dr. Sophie Bjork-James, who is a senior fellow at the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. She teaches at Vanderbilt University, and she is also the author of The Divine Institution. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us what is the Divine Institution? Well, what's your area of research? Yeah, so I'm a cultural anthropologist, and my background is in studying far-right social movements in the United States. And... I look at the relationship between uh, gender, sexuality, and race in conservative social movements. So I've studied the online white nationalist movement since 2004, and my dissertation research was on the white evangelical movement in the United States. So I did the research in Colorado Springs, Colorado, which is known as kind of tongue-in-cheek as the evangelical Vatican, because it's been a center of evangelical uh, politics and culture for decades. So as an anthropologist, I am an outsider. I'm not an evangelical. So I started attending church services and Bible study groups to try to understand evangelical politics. In the U.S., white evangelicals make up uh, one of the largest voting blocks, the largest voting block. They represent about a quarter of the electorate and vote about 80% Republican. So I was interested in what created that political unity among a religious culture. And what I found is that the center of evangelical theology, uh, everyday life and politics is the patriarchal family, which I call the divine institution. So I saw it, found it really as this, you know, something that people both try to live within, uh, you know, and create for themselves, but also as a symbol for politics, culture, society. It really is hard to overstate its role in white evangelicalism. And I saw it as, uh, you know, uniting both one's religious experience, one's everyday experience, and one's politics. How big is the evangelical Christian population in the United States, and what's its relationship to other forms of Christianity? Yeah, so so evangelicalism is defined as a belief in being born again. That's one of the main things that's differentiated from other forms of Christianity or what we often call mainline churches, like the Methodists, for example. So evangelicals are born again. They take the Bible literally or um, seriously, and they focus on evangelizing. And so 
I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I do know that since the 1970s, there's evangelicals have been increasing in terms of the popula- rest of the population and more mainline Christian uh, churches have been decreasing. And so, but what, what we find is if we look at political perspectives that most white evangelicals, as I mentioned, vote conservatively and so tend to embrace kind of you know, free market capitalism, limited government, uh, limited, they're, they're forced, uh, like decreasing government spending and welfare programs, even like food aid and are, you know, against LGBT rights, uh, against abortion. Um, it's a very, have, there's a, there's a number of, they, they, they have wide political influence. There's a, this apocalyptic line of thinking that sort of runs through evangelical Christianity. How does that inform their politics? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the most uh, striking things about evangelical culture is that it's a very, for me, I'm an, you know, I'm an American. Like I grew up in the United States. I, but like, even though I was studying also in America, a form of American culture, it was very different because as I said, I'm not a Christian, uh, but for an evangelical, the evangelical worldview, they believe that, you know, the, it's a very particular kind of way of understanding history because they typically believe that, you know, the, the God created the world in perfection in the Garden of Eden, and then sin was introduced. And since then, sin has kind of been expanding and wreaking chaos in the world. And so some of them believe in what they call devolution. And so they'll say, well, evolution does, isn't actually correct because we've actually been devolving uh, since the Garden of Eden. But just as there is a, there's, you know, been a long history of kind of struggles to define how the universe was created, right? With the, like the beginning of time with evangelicals being against the concept of evolution, they also have a very clear idea about the end of time. And so they believe that, you know, at some point uh, there's, you know, I've, kind of su- summarizing here and there's, you know, gradations and huge debates about how this will take out. But uh, overall evangelicals tend to believe that, you know, Jesus at some point will return. Many white Americans believe in their lifetimes and that when Jesus returns, the world will be destroyed. Those who are born again or saved as they call themselves will be whisked away <laughs> to some distant heaven and the earth will be destroyed. So this plays out in the, the politics of this kind of view, worldview, play out in different ways. So I've written about white evangelical views on climate change. So white evangelicals have been the largest demographic group in the United States to deny the reality of anthropogenic climate change. And there's a lot of attempts to understand why. Um, you know, I've, I found it really striking in my research when you know, if I ever even just mentioned in when I was spending time with evangelicals, like, oh, yeah, it's strange that it's a, you know, like really hot day in January and everyone has their windows open because that's, you know, Colorado winter is typically very, you know, typically can be cold. Um, you know, even if I just mentioned changes in weather, there would be, I'd be met with silence, right? There's just a profound, like, lack of interest in talking about climate change. Like I never try to think the only times that in my research, when I heard people mention it were to either a one, like make fun of Al Gore, 
you know, like make comments like, oh, yeah, where's what's how does Al Gore think now? Like in a day when it would be snowing, for example, or two, I mean, that was or two, like uh, talking about how, you know, the climate change isn't destroying the world. It's like really sin that's destroying the world. And we're all going to go to like this distant heaven when the time comes. And so what I found is that the evangelicals that really did care about climate change and did care about the environment and we're trying to, you know, not just recycle and, you know, have electric cars, but also to advocate for policies addressing climate change, that those evangelicals also had a different view of the future. They believed, you know, Jesus would return and everything would change, but that that would happen here on earth. And their belief that heaven was not some distant, faraway place, but actually here on earth meant that they, like, was very much connected to this ethic of care where they felt like they needed to care for the planet itself. Uh, for me, I see, see this kind of the belief in like what has been called like lifeboat theology that, you know, the earth is a sinking ship and it's, you know, a place of sin and we can, you know, I'll be whisked away to some beautiful distant heaven as very much a product of both white supremacy and the settler state aspect of the United States, a kind of a, you know, where European settlers came and, you know, saw the wilderness as a place to be conquered, saw indigenous peoples as, you know, Im- not, not uh, embracing correct morality or correct sexual practices and that they needed to kind of slash and burn both the environment and the indigenous peoples here as kind of the foundation of this current view that, you know, the earth is something that, is going to be destroyed and doesn't need to be protected. And it's just kind of a temporary holding space until, you know, they can get to heaven. You've written a little bit about the, those sort of different ways that the world would be considered to end. So there's a premillennialism, this idea that there'll be a thousand years of pain and torture on earth and then post-millennialism, which is, I'd say, arguably a cheerier outcome. What, why is it that the sort of more gory version is, seems to be the more popular <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's a that's a that's a great question, and I, I I don't know. I mean, I you know, for I read a a paper that was comparing the most popular book in the racist right to the most popular book like not set of novels in the religious right, and so it's the Left Behind series, one of the most uh, popular uh, book series. Like, I mean, it I think it oversold the Hunger Games. Like, it's a very popular. Uh, not ser- novel series um, that is expresses this white evangelical worldview to uh, the Turner Diaries, which was this novel published in the 1970s and kind of is seen as a blueprint for much of the racist right activism. But the storylines are almost exactly the same. Like I describe, I, when I, I describe the, their similarities, and it takes up over a page to basically describe, you know, the the this, the narrative structure is the same. And in some ways, the violence that's imagined in this kind of millennial period is actually far worse in the Left Behind series, that white evangelical worldview, than it is in the Turner Diaries. Because in the, the, the view, and, and the, because both of the books, I mean, are incredibly violent and, you know, depict, like they even depict these kind of epic apocalyptic wars, uh, as saying, and like each use the same line saying that they produce rivers of blood. Right. And so I feel like it's just really profound that the 
you know, most popular novel in the racist right and the most popular set of novels in the religious right are so similar. And so I think that this definitely stems from the history of white supremacy uh, in the United States. You know, there's some probably similarities with other white settler states in terms of kind of violent or origins of the country and how those continue to shape the way that the future is imagined. But for me, it's very disturbing because what it allows for is imagining that the future will, you know, will not only involve tremendous violence, but that that violence is actually to be celebrated because it's going to then create this, you know, epic peace for at least people who are saved. I feel like allows for a kind of lack of care, right? If in that you don't necessarily have to care about everybody, which contradicts what, you know, the evangelicals will say, you know, like often they don't even describe themselves as Christians. They'll say they're Christ followers. They say that Christianity gets so many things wrong and that what they want is to really just embrace Jesus's ethic, which is, you know, but that would mean really all about like love and care and compassion. And what I found is that in everyday life, most white evangelicals really do embrace that in terms of trying to be compassionate and ethical with people in their everyday lives, with the exception that for people who are LGBT or support LGBT rights are often ostracized, but that there is this attempt to really embrace this ethic of care in individual like relationships. But that I think this kind of view that the future is going to involve epic violence where everyone who disagrees with them will be destroyed and you know, there may not, the main interpretation of that worldview in literature, you know, really depicts gory violence and really celebrates that violence, can create this callous view in the present of people who are in, who deserve kind of moral compassion and care versus people who are out. And so it very much is connected to, can be in, you know, support for imperialism, support for anti-Islamic racism, uh, and other, other forms of like disregard in our presence as well. You're listening to 3CR at 55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Dr. Sophie Bjork-James about white evangelicals. Another narrative uh, which involves a lot of uh, gory violence being visited upon everyone who's uh, done us wrong is the QAnon phenomenon. Uh, I was wondering, has QAnon had an impact within evangelical circles? It's, it's uh, undeniable. It's really had a, had a pretty big impact. I mean, how, what I see QAnon has, as doing is there's been a lot of different, like QAnon is probably the best example of this, but um, what's happened with social media and the, far, and the right and the far right. And I'm just speaking about the United States, but I think this is, there's probably, there could be similarities uh, in other parts of the world is that, you know, there used to be this division between people who, who were white conservatives and people who were white nationalists. So white nationalists, you know, are people who they won't say they're racist because no one wants to say they're a racist right now because it's, it seems like a, it's a pejorative term in the contemporary U.S. But so no one says they're racist, but white nationalists will say, you know, like white whiteness is white, white people are important and they'll explicitly talk about race and, you know, embrace like explicit racism versus white conservatives who may be implicitly racist, but want to see themselves as colorblind, right? And so that there is this division, you know, kind of a barrier between, organ- you know, people who are ex- motivated explicitly, explicitly by racism versus people who were probably implicitly motivated by racism, but 
you know, wanted to see themselves as colorblind and not racist. And so what's happened with social media is it provided, it basically brought this giant megaphone to far right anti-democratic actors uh, to reach an audience that was unfathomable even 10 years ago. Because what's happened now that everyone's on social media is that it's created this, you know, I mean, giant public square that, you know, savvy anti-democratic actors can then find like many different communities to spread their very radical ideas. And so they've been incredibly successful with that. So with QAnon, right, uh, QAnon starts as some random person posting in, you know, these, you know, very kind of like influential but marginal online um, image boards and an entire conspiracy forums around these, you know, very, very enigmatic posts that brings that, you know, basically it, it, when Trump was still president, brought together this very, like, you know, probably millennial old anti-Semitic conspiracy of blood libel and a, and a global elite that, you know, wants, that hates children. And then, frames Trump as the savior, right? And so what it allowed for right, when Trump was president is this conspiracy that basically viewed Trump as this secret genius who had a plan to overthrow this evil global cabal, you know, and that no matter what happened, they could frame Trump as the hero, right? So Q pretty much stops posting after the election, after Trump loses the election, but it has morphed and what I think it functions as today, but also this started under Trump is to really bring various aspects of the right. So both the conservative, traditionally conservative, right, along with the racist right together, so that now most of the right sounds very similar, right? Like it, it, they, many people who are now, who are, you know, would be, would not even consider themselves to be political, they consider themselves to be conservative Christians, will espouse QAnon talking points, uh, which sound the exact same as talking points that white nationalists will use. Uh, And so I think QAnon, what it does is it creates this moral recasting of reality, right? Where there's, you know, the, the people who follow Q are the heroes, everyone else is a villain, and it really is challenging democratic values and i think leading it's it's part of a broad series of changes that i think are leading to more of an embrace of violence on the right um, which i think is very dangerous in reference to colorblindness and white supremacy in the context of christianity in the united states what have you found to be the chief difficulties in addressing the question of white religion Well, they are numerous. So I think, you know, for, I think there's, there's two parts to that. On the one hand, whiteness in the United States has often not been associated with race, but with just the norm, right? And so white culture has not until recently, it's starting to be pointed out as about a product of a racial experience in relation to a history of racism. Uh, but it's functions historically like the as a privileged category to be able to just be the norm, just to be how things, you know, maybe 
are normally or how things ought to be. Uh, and so many white people don't have to recognize that, right? To recognize that they are not just normal, right? But uh, actually privileged by this broader racial system that has shaped the United States since its inception. And so, you know, in terms of that's a huge barrier, both in terms of for white Christians to understand, because they want to say, they want to respond, this isn't about race, this is just about, you know, the way Christianity ought to be believed. And they want to say that, you know, I mean, there's, there's a whole like, I was, I was so surprised in my, my research in Colorado, where so many, there's like, despite the fact that the Bibles that people were reading had gone through multiple language translations, right, that people would believed that the Bibles that they held in their hands, written in contemporary English, they would like kind of forget the like complexity of the translations that had gone on between Jesus's time and today. And I think that that also kind of creates, like helps to like show the way that you know, contemporary privilege can shape a, an idea of Christianity that is not the same as the original forms of Christianity. The other thing is that in white evangelicalism, they really celebrate in the individual and individual relationships. And that becomes the most important thing. And really what, 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 they, what this worldview does is it makes uh, structural relationships invisible, right? And so it's not... Uh, you know, they think when they think of poverty, the solution to poverty is that they will say, you know, individuals don't have good family values. Uh, and they'll say, you know, poor, poor people just, you know, there's not enough fathers in the home and there's not enough legal marriage. And so the kids don't grow up to have good values and then they can't make money. And that's so the solution to poverty, you know, it's not is in helping poor people develop better family values. That's, that's the solution, right? It's like becomes all about the individual and relationships. And so, you know, they would see the, you know, the, the best solution would be like for middle-class Christians to go and befriend, you know, low-income Christians or homeless, you know, houseless Christians or houseless people and try to teach them, right? Um, versus a, you know, understanding poverty as a structure, as a system, as related to policies that, have make it so that certain people just don't make enough or can't make enough to actually, you know, survive in, you know, comfortably in society. And so that also means that this kind of in focus on individualism and really individual relationships means it's very hard then to understand systemic racism and the way that it structures society. Um, it's also a barrier to understanding the way, uh, climate change and the way that, you know, our series of policies and consumption habits, you know, are leading to climate chaos. Like that's a structure. You have to be able to understand and believe in structures to understand that concept. And so this version of white evangelical Christianity that, I mean, really sacralizes individualism uh, is a huge barrier towards understanding the, its relationship to race and racism and other, many other issues. One mechanism by which people might try and understand uh, systemic racism is uh, through the prism of critical race theory, 
which came in for a bit of a, a drubbing in the dying days of the Trump empire. And I, it's still a bit of a uh, boogeyman, but perhaps less so now that people have pivoted to the right to take horse dewormer. I was wondering, though, do you think the attacks on critical race theory will make the sort of scholarship that you do uh, more difficult? I, you know, it's, it's, it's gonna, it's, it makes things very complicated. So, you know, I live in Tennessee. It's a very conservative state and our state legislator, legislature voted in this past summer to make it illegal to teach critical race theory in public schools in so, and in, in the state. Uh, so they basically, the law says, you know, it's being challenged. Uh, so it's, it'll, we'll see what happens, but it, it says you cannot teach that any group, whether, you know, race, gender, sexuality, religion is inherently privileged. Um, so it's very sloppy language because, you know, no group is inherently privileged, right? We're, People are privileged by societal structures, which are not inherent. They are flexible, but they are also enduring, right? But uh, what it allows for is a, like that it, it, it provides parents the opportunity to sue their teachers, kids' teachers, if they think that they're teaching these concepts. And so it can have a huge impact in terms of limiting what people teach because it, you know, raises this question, the civil rights movement was very central and, you know, played a huge role in Tennessee. Tennessee played a huge role in the civil rights movement. And it becomes this question of, well, if you teach about Martin Luther King and, you know, the civil rights movement and voting history, fighting for voting rights and voting for racial justice, is that, could that be defined as critical race theory? So I think it's going to have, it will be having a really tremendously negative effect in public schools. So those are, you know, schools that are tax uh, funded by, 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 ta- by taxes that most children go to. And it's really disturbing because it means that many teachers will likely be afraid to actually teach what happened historically and in the present. So I think that the effects are going to be broad. It's unclear what's going to happen at higher levels of education. I think that this is a direction that they are probably, there is probably going to be conservatives will be moving in um, where I teach at a private university. And so we aren't subjected to the same laws. And so I am, am continue to be free to teach about um, the research that I do, but I, it, it is a really disturbing trend that I think will have significant impacts. Speaking of uh, being born again, I wondered if you're familiar with the figure and the career of Milo Yiannopoulos, who uh, at one point was uh, made a great deal of the fact that he was both uh, a gay and uh, on the right, and yet has now embraced, I think, Catholicism. What do you think, if anything, his career tells us about the right in the contemporary United States? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I know him and know about him, but uh, can't speak extensively about him. But I do think that, you know, what I, I think that there are a variety, there's, there's, there's been a broad attempt to uh, bring especially younger men into conservative politics. And I think he reflects that. And I think that, you know, the shift for, because for decades, I mean, the religious right forums in the late 1970s in the United States, they are incredibly successful in getting 
Ronald Reagan elected to the presidency, and they kind of define and shape conservative politics in the United States through, you know, 2015. And, you know, they're, you know, when, you know, I, I did a, I did over a hundred inter- interviews with white evangelicals and every interview I would end with a question about, you know, are there certain political issues that you think Christians should support? And uh, it was like very interesting because almost everyone responded in the same way. They'd be like, Oh, well, you know, it's not about politics and it's really about, you know, what's in your heart. And so then I'd have to say like, well, are there, you know, what about responsibilities to society? If it's not about politics. And then people would kind of, and then eventually say, well, okay, it really is about, there's, you know, there's two things that I will always vote for as a Christian, and that's to defend life and to defend marriage. Right? So the two, uh, the, you know, the, the, the kind of two, two cornerstones of the religious right of white evangelical politics uh, have been, um, you know, being against LGBTQ rights and being against abortion. And so I think what's happened in the past six years or so with this blurring of the boundaries between the religious right and the racist right is that there's new formations on the right that have emerged that, uh, you know, we can see that with uh, across the United States, there's all these uh, groups that are adjacent to white nationalism, but let's say they're white nationalists, like the Proud Boys is a good example. Um, But there's all of these movements that are, generally very dominated by, by young white men, but that are kind of, ex- I think, experimenting in different formations of the conservative movement. And so some of those are around saying like, well, you can be gay and be a conservative as long as you embrace these other, this other set of like beliefs and ways of being in the world. Um, but I think we're seeing a bunch of different experiments playing out with the intent that the, these movements expand and continue to gain power. Yeah, I guess also the constant invocation of uh, what's termed uh, family values obviously is, um, heavily informs the discourse around evangelical Christianity. I was wondering if you could connect that to uh, the other concerns within uh, a settler colonial society like the United States, which in that sense quite closely resembles um, Australia. And finally, our... Uh, Prime Minister is, I think, the first uh, evangelical uh, Prime Minister to occupy the office and has a close association with the Hillsong Church, which has a presence in the United States as well, is the, well, two questions. Uh, what The other question concerns the, the concept of um, the prosperity gospel. And um, I, was, I was wondering if you could elaborate on that in relation to its usage in terms of embracing what's termed uh, free market capitalism? Yeah, great questions. And yeah, Hillsong is, it's like, if you if you go to almost any large church in the United States, large evangelical church, they will be playing uh, songs from, from Hillsong. They will be playing, you know, their local church band will be playing, playing those songs. Um, very, very influential. So, you know, the, the first question, you know, I think one of the ways that European settlers define themselves as uh, better than indigenous cultures was through the institution of marriage, right? So I'm a cultural anthropologist. I know that while 
Family is a universal value. Families come in all shapes, sizes, forms. There is not one family. And, you know, if we think about the nuclear family of, you know, a husband and a wife living separately from an extended family, mainly prioritizing the relationships between just that marriage and the children, that is a very unique form of like cultural family formation that emerges with the birth of capitalism, right? There's, you know, Marx and Engels wrote about this, uh, you know, about the way that nuclear family was required for um, inheritance, right? And inheriting property and inheriting wealth. And so, you know, we see with the Protestant Reformation, the shift from Catholicism to Protestantism, a shift in family form, uh, you know, so like that's inseparable from the birth of capitalism. Uh, so there, you know, the, the Catholic Church had made patriarchy and marriage, you know, very central to their theology historically. That focus is maintained in Protestantism, but it's just that the family family is shifted, right? And so it's no longer about this extended family uh, with aunts and uncles and grandparents and you know people living living together often, and you know feeling like the you know understanding the family as this extended network shifts with the birth of capitalism, the birth of Protestantism towards the nuclear family. So in the U.S. as a settler state, you know you have mainly individual families, you know, people are moving from their, you know, traditional homes in Europe, uh, often without bringing that extended network and settling in the United States and encountering these indigenous cultures that were not defined by the nuclear family, were not defined by, you know, millennia of Catholic emphasis on patriarchy and on hetero, on, I mean, it wasn't, we didn't have the concept of heterosexuality then. But, you know, it wasn't about lifelong marriage and these, you know, so a lot of prejudice against indigenous cultures came from their different sexual and familial habits, right? So about, you know, different like ideas, you know, they, they weren't necessarily believing that the body was shameful and so didn't need to try to cover it up. They, you know, many First Nations cultures did not embrace monogamy. You know, they did not, that child care is collective, you know, they didn't support patriarchy. And so the family was used as a way to both discriminate against indigenous cultures by saying that they were backwards. They didn't have a, you know, they didn't know how to properly raise children. They didn't know how to, you know, they had to be taught patriarchy. They had to be taught lifelong marriage. And so, you know, this kind of our contemporary politics of the family, which in the United States, which can often seem non-racial, right? The kind of opposition to same-sex marriage that continues to today, despite the fact that it's now legal for people to get married, despite the sex or gender identity of either partner, that there's still a huge opposition to that. But I think we can, you know, trace this back to this very long history of seeing in your, you know, European white Christian moral supremacy was about this embrace of the family, right? And using it and throughout US racial history, the white family has been used as a, a, a way to discriminate against other, other groups. So, you know, the, you know, against Native Americans for having different, uh, embracing different familial and marital relations, you know, the 
uh, African Americans have been discriminated against for saying, you know, for embracing different types of familial uh, engagements that diverge from this, you know, norm of the white white patriarchal nuclear family. So I think it very much is a product of this history. And what it allows for today is by focusing on the individual patriarchal nuclear family, it allows for a way to say that that, you know, because what evangelicals will say is that that's the family in the Bible, despite the fact that it's actually not ever represented in the Bible. But they'll say that it's the, this is the biblical family. And what that does is it kind of cuts out history, right? It says this isn't about U.S. racial history. This is about uh, this kind of trans-historical form, family formation that's biblical, that's normal, that shouldn't be contested. And it's also a way to kind of define um, so that group, that family, and like people who embrace it as superior, right? So it's very much connected, I think, to this history. And it also helps to kind of erase that history at the same time. So the question about the prosperity gospel. So the churches that I studied were not, they wouldn't, they were, they're not defined as about prosperity gospel. You know, this trend that, you know, where certain Christian churches will say, you know, you just have to pray and give us money and then you'll get really wealthy. Right. Um, But what I did find really striking in my research, both in Colorado Springs and in attending religious right conferences is that they, most evangelicals will believe that God can work through the markets, but he cannot work through the state. And so, you know, there is uh, this kind of famous African-American leader who like speaks at a lot of religious right conferences, who identifies as someone who was formerly on welfare as a single mom and then met, you know, converted to Christianity and now became this, now is this very successful speaker uh, and political actor. And, you know, she, she, she has this quote saying, like, it's God or government, one or the other. Right? And it's very broadly believed that, uh, you know, the state cannot, that, that, you know, that the state will block God. So you can't, you can't use, you know, even like, like food stamps or, you know, uh, support for like poor people to be able to buy houses. You know, like that's inhibiting their, them from having a relationship with God. But they also believe that God can work through finance for, through the market, right? And so they can pray for more money or they can pray for things to go well, you know, fin- financially for the church, et cetera. And so I found that really striking. But I think that it also goes to this history of, you know, I think like there's, you know, this very foundational book by Weber about the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. And I think with evangelicals, they really emerge with uh, at the same time that this new economic like worldview and set of policies emerges neoliberalism and that they're very much tied together, that this kind of evangelical prioritization of the individual and individual families uh, and relationships in the face of, I mean, there's, it's the last 40 years in the United States has, there's been a seismic shift in inequality, right? Where it used to be that, you know, we were an unequal society that, you know, but that there, it's, it's just like profoundly different today in terms of the level of inequality that emerges, that has emerged. Um, the, you know, and this is in everything from, you know, the ratio of CEO pay to the average, you know, wages that a, um, someone in that same company makes. It's like, it's 
astronomically different today. We are in a, you know, very different economic order today with an incredibly shrunken middle class without a safety net. And that entire restructuring of the economy is really made invisible by evangelicals who will say, none of that matters. What matters is your individual relationships. And what that also says, if you're making, if you're middle class and are still having, and you're having a comfortable life, then it's, then you also get to say that, you know, it's because you deserve that as opposed to you're actually privileged by the system that is maybe that has made it incredibly hard for many families to survive. I mean, in the United States, there's, I mean, the, this is even before the pandemic and I think it's worse now, but you know, one in, it's about one in five children will experience food insecurity and the number of children that, you know, are homeless or facing eviction or, you know, are in unstable families because of economics is really astronomical. And that moral question never has to get addressed in this white evangelical worldview because they'll say it's not about a system that benefits some and oppresses others, but they'll say it's all about the individual, right? And so I think it can really paint over this very unequal uh, society, um, making it both invisible and making it seem like it can't change. How terribly convenient. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's all we've got time for. If you want to follow Sophie on Twitter, she is at, at sbjorkjames. You can also find her website, sophiebjorkjames.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for your questions. Well, Andy, that was very interesting. It was, Ken. Uh, we will be back next week. Global Intifada is up next. See you later. See you later.
Health Before Profits is a campaign to oppose the Liberal Party's reckless drive to reopen, which threatens the health and safety of Australia's poor, working class and Indigenous communities. We demand an immediate return to a zero COVID elimination strategy before it's too late. Join us for online forums, activism and campaigns. To find out more, follow Health Before Profits Vic on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Health Before Profits is a 3CR supporter.